So today's text is from Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Please follow along as I read the passage aloud for us. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we, has, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. This is a very odd way to end a prayer. Jesus starts his prayer in the way that makes sense to us. Uh, even if you're like just learning how to pray or just new to prayer, you probably realize it's probably good to start prayer with God. So Jesus starts his prayer when teaching us how to pray. Pray like this, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. So the prayer starts with God. This means we pray for God's name to be holy and wonderful and powerful. Now this all makes sense. But then Jesus, Jesus teaches us to end prayer with the word evil. Like the model prayer starts with God and ends with evil and ends abruptly with evil. Like every single week, I don't know if it catches you off guard that it just ends. We go through the whole prayer and then it's lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. And you're like, well, isn't there more to that? So it's so abrupt, it's so like alarming that the early church tacked on an ending to this prayer, a doxology, because it seems so weird to end prayer with evil. So they attach at the end, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, amen. Now that's how you end a prayer. <laughs> but not for Jesus. Jesus wanted to alert us to the real danger of our lives as we end prayer and seek to live our prayers out. He wanted us to be aware of an enemy that does not want God's name to be hallowed, that doesn't want God's kingdom to come, that doesn't want God's will to be done, that doesn't want our needs to be met daily by God, that doesn't and definitely does not want us to seek forgiveness as we forgive others. Now, of course, the evil one that I'm talking about here is the devil or Satan. Some of your translations say deliver us from evil and others say deliver us from the evil one. They're both the same. I think the, uh, the best translation, the most clear to our language is deliver us from the evil one. Now, how do we know that Jesus here is specifically talking and referring to Satan? How do we know, how do we know that this is like, well, evil, it just means like the evil stuff, like if we do bad things and things like that. How do we know that Jesus is specifically saying deliver us from the evil one? Well, we're in chapter six of Matthew. If you go back two chapters, if you think with me for a second, go back two chapters, and Jesus himself was tempted. And he was tempted by being led into a place that temptation happened. And he was tempted by the, by the Satan. Listen, Matthew 4.1, it says this. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, it says there that te the temptation was done by the devil. It wasn't done by God. For some of you, you're like, well, it doesn't say, in, like in James, that God doesn't tempt anyone. So it says here that, that the God led Jesus, the Spirit led Jesus to a place where Satan did the tempting, but God led him to the place where he met Satan. Does that make sense? 
And Jesus went to the place where he would encounter the devil in temptation. And Jesus teaches us to pray. Pray like this. God, do not lead me into a place of temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. Now, what does this mean? How do we pray this prayer? And why, why, why do we pray this prayer? Like, what does this prayer even have to do with um, our prayer lives? And probably most importantly, why did Jesus end his model prayer by teaching us to pray like this. Now, before I answer these questions, I need to deal with something that might be in the room that I'm pretty sure is in a room of this size in the city. It's this feeling or this belief that Satan or the devil or demons or manifested evil is something that you could get behind once a year during Halloween, but not something you really believe in the rest of the year. It's like believing in Spider-Man or Ghost Spider, those aren't real things, right? Like my daughter this year for Halloween is Ghost Spider and now and my son is Spider-Man and they got dressed up yesterday to come to the Harvest Festival which was amazing here at the church and as Junie dressed up as Ghost Spider, if you know the Spider-Man universe, you know who Ghost Spider is. So as Junie dressed up as Ghost Spider, she put the mask on and I went, oh my gosh, where did Junie go? She was just here. Ghost Spider, nice to see you. And Junie's like, starts lighting up like, oh my gosh, I'm really Ghost Spider. And then she takes off the mask. She's like, no, Dad, it's just me. It's, it's Juniper's right here. Now, I don't really believe that Junie, when she puts on the costume, becomes Ghost Spider. I don't really believe that. But I play along, right? I play along. Now, many of us, when we hear about demons, the devil, Satan, will play along. That's what we'll do. We'll be at church. We don't really believe it ourselves. We don't really believe this, but we'll, we're at church. Of course, they believe in Satan. I'll play along. When we pray, I'll even pray, like, deliver us from evil. But we don't really, we'll play along, but we don't really believe it in our, like, deep in our bones. We don't really believe there's this, this kind of demonic power. See, you and I, if you've grown up in the West, you've been raised in a materialistic, that is, like, physical material, a materialistic and scientific worldview. Now, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. We have great benefits for, for growing up in a scientific and materialistic world. This is, I don't want to live in a world without Purell or like Dyson vacuum cleaners. Like, I don't want that world. I don't want that world to exist. I love that stuff. However, there is a dark side to this. Now, there's some of it that scientific advancement and materialistic, like how we can observe the universe, all of that stuff is really good, but there is a dark side. Meaning, we also believe that if we can't see it, and or measure it, it's not real. Thus, every bad thing someone does in this world is attributed to some sort of societal or clinical cause. It can't be the devil. It can't be evil. It can't be demons. It can't be that sort of thing. It's got to be something else. And so when we hear of a school shooting, the only category we can put that in is mental illness and gun control. Like, those are the only categories we can really talk about things like school shootings. In his book, The Death of Satan, Andrew Del Banco, Del, uh, yeah, Del Banco, a secular, liberal intellectual. So if you're a skeptic in here, he's one of you. If you're a skeptic, you're like, I don't know. He's one of you. He's a skeptic. He's a professor at Columbia University. He writes that secular people in the West, U.S. specifically, have no vocabulary to deal with evil 
And because that's hard, it's hard because we don't deal, we don't have a vocabulary to deal with evil. It's hard for modern secular people to cope with evil. In his book, he shares a scene from the acclaimed horror film, The The Silence of the Lambs, where Clary Starling, the young FBI trainee, asks the cannibalistic serial killer Hannibal Lecter what happened to make him so twisted. And Hannibal, played by the great Anthony Hopkins, says this, quote, nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say that I'm evil? Del Blanco writes in his book, modern people cannot answer the monster's question. A gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources for coping with it. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. Listen to this lesson, it's really interesting. But as the 12th century has gone on and it has gotten harder and harder to say that holocausts and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. I think this last sentence is haunting and interesting because I think, now you guys know that, um, you guys and gals know that, uh, San Francisco tends to be, um, like what happens in San Francisco, it's like way ahead of, uh, the, the culture of San Francisco is way ahead of the rest of like the nation, typically. Like places like San Francisco are way ahead. So things that happen here in the 60s are basically happening finally in rural places in America, kind of, right? So that, that's how it happens. It happens in like urban centers like San Francisco and then culture shifts and then changes throughout the entire nation, right? This is like the, the very famous Rebecca Solnit in her book on San Francisco says, um, San Francisco is like the left, most left part of the world where um, the most anti-American place where America invents itself. So this is basically San Francisco, right? Now, this lesson's interesting because I think we're living, and especially here in San Francisco, I'm, I, I feel this, I know this. We're living in the middle of a transition. We're living on a, in, a, in the cusp of a very important cultural moment. Our materialistic and scientific modern worldview has disenchanted the world. It's taken away belief in things we cannot see. It says that the, the things, uh, the way things are and the way that we are can all be observed and quantified. And what this has done is it's left us wildly dissatisfied. Pete Gregg in his book, um, How to Pray, which has been a primer for us um, as, a, as a staff going through the prayer series, uh, I recommend this book to you, How to Pray. It's a wonderful book. In his book, he quotes um, Yuval Noah Harari, and the, the famous like, author, public intellectual, and historian. In his book, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and he quotes Harari by saying, quote, humankind is losing faith in the liberal story that dominated global politics in recent decades. 
Right? I think this is true, especially in places like San Francisco. The secular story is losing credibility and everybody kind of knows it. It has disenchanted the world and has not offered any satisfactory alternative explanation for both evil and good in our worlds. And we're on a cusp. We're on a, we're on a cusp of people turning back to reenchantment moving towards spiritual, moving towards the unseen world. We're, we're like living right at this place. But here's the thing. Now that people are turning to this world, this unseen world, and a lot of people do this in and around San Francisco, you're coming out of this like, like um, individualistic, materialistic worldview where you don't think that there's an evil. And because of that, you're still part of this like secular worldview and you're moving to things unseen. And as you're doing that, you're moving towards, and people are moving towards evil without knowing it. That makes sense? So you get things like tarot cards, which happen in coffee shops everywhere all over the city. I sit there and will be writing my sermon and looking over and people are playing tarot cards. Uh, seances, trying to speak to the dead. There's a Netflix series, Life, Life After Death, if you've ever heard of that. There's uh, shamans and ayahuasca. There's all kinds of things where people modern, secular people are turning to the unseen realm without knowing anything about evil. And because people are turning towards the spiritual world without any framework of the unseen realm, they are turning towards things that are honestly dangerous and evil. So let me try to give you a framework for the unseen, one that is thousands of years old in the making, and I want to land back then on how Jesus teaches us to pray all in the next 10 minutes, so bear with me. According to biblical scholars, humans were not the first thing God created to reflect his image. That's one uh, really helpful way of trans translating human were created in God's image. We're created to reflect God's image, to, to, to mirror back to God who he is. Humans weren't the first beings to do that. They were heavenly beings that were made to reflect God's image. These are not just angels. We kind of think of everything as angels and fallen angels. That's not really how it works. There's Elohim. Now, by the way, this is a whole like theology class, and we will get there as a church, I promise. So I'm assuming this is a, a, just a, a, an overview, just enough to just go like, oh, maybe. That's, that's all I'm trying to do. <laughs> Heavenly beings. There's Elohim, which are sons of God, which kind of sit on God's council. There's angels that are messengers. There's archangels that are like warring angels. There's seraphim that are before God, worshiping God day and night. And God chose to create humanity. And when God chose to create humanity, there were an angel, a, 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 not an angel, an Elohim, a son of God, that, or many, or few, we don't really know, that um, were so jealous of the, of the way that God was creating humanity, humanity that he was hell-bent, he or she, whatever, being, was hell-bent on humanity's destruction. And so led a rebellion. Led a rebellion, and this is why when you read Genesis 1 and 2, and you get to chapter 3, there's a, a snake in the garden speaking parcel tongue. You're like, what is happening? This book is weird. Like, what? How do we get here? Where is this from? Where is this snake even from? Who is the snake? What is the serpent? What is that? And you don't really know. You have to keep reading in the story. This, this, and we find out later in Revelation that that serpent of old was Satan, the devil. That's what we find out later. But at the time, we don't really know that. And this, this, this fallen um, uh, Elohim, the son of God, that rebelled, that led a rebellion, is trying to move humanity towards its own destruction by not trusting in God's good word, but 
but like tempting, tempting, I'll get to that in a second, tempting them away from it. And because this son of God, this Elohim, this heavenly being knows that God is love, and this being knows that God will always, always allow a choice to choose to follow God or not follow God. God creates with free will. God creates with choice, because that's what love is. Love is choice. So the serpent tempts and just tries to destroy humanity, move them away. And this is where biblical scholars believe that when Satan actually does tempt Adam and Eve away from God's goodness, he then gets the mandate over the earth that humanity gave. God gave humanity rule over the earth. Take this rule of mine and subdue the earth. You are my image bearers ruling the earth. When, when the Satan took that, he took authority. This is what um, biblical scholars believe. This is why when when you get to Jesus, when Satan's showing Jesus all the kingdoms and say, I will give this to you, Jesus doesn't go, whoa, what time out? You don't own the kingdoms. He goes, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna only worship God. Because G- the Satan could, he had rule over all the kingdoms. And this is why Jesus, after resurrection, steps up and says, now all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Through the cross, Jesus takes back the authority, okay? So again, this is like, whew, this is like a huge, huge flyover. So, Satan on the earth with fallen, there's other fallen beings or rebellious heavenly beings. How we get those, that's a whole, a whole other thing I can't really get into right now. But we have this. Who is the devil then? Who is the devil or who is Satan? Satan is the Hebrew word hasatan, which is the Satan. It's like a proper noun, like hasatan. And this word means the adversary or the opposer, someone who, who opposes the good will of God, the good word of God, the goodness of God. First shows up in Genesis 3 as the serpent. In in the New Testament, you get the word the devil, Greek diablos. This is the slanderer, the accuser. The names Satan and the devil get used interchangeably in the Gospels, not in the Old Testament. You won't find the word the devil in the Old Testament. You'll find the word hasatan in the Old Testament. You won't find the devil in the Old Testament. That sort of language gets developed in the New Testament. uh, N.T. Wright, a very famous biblical scholar, says this. The biblical picture of the Satan is a non-human and non-divine quasi-personal force which seems bent on attacking and destroying creation in general and humankind in particular. And above all, thwarting God's project of remaking the world and human beings in and through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. In short, the aim of Satan, the devil, is death. Death separates, this is why Satan rules over the realm of the dead. Satan separates us from God, which brings a kind of death, right? This is exactly what happens in the garden. And this is the death of humanity. This is the death of creation. This is the death of all that is good. The death of shalom, integration, peace, harmony. Jesus even says this, John 8, 44. You belong to your father, speaking to the religious leaders. The devil... And you want to carry out your father's desires. What is that? He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And then Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief, that is the Satan, the devil, the slanderer, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. This is Satan's attempt and intent. This is what he wants to do. Jesus says, but I've come that you may have life and you may have life to the full. 
Jesus contrasts his kingdom and purposes to Satan's kingdom and purposes. Now, Satan does have a kingdom. Jesus even says this. Jesus says when um, people, when Jesus comes and, and one of the things he comes to do immediately, he's casting demons out of people, right? This is 1 John says, Jesus was revealed to destroy the works of the devil. This is what Jesus does. He goes after people who are possessed, oppressed, demonized, and cast them out to free them. So Jesus says, um, well, the religious leaders say, well, Jesus, the reason why you're able to cast out demons is because you are a demon. Actually, you're a chief of demons. And Jesus says famously in Matthew 12, 26, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then could his kingdom stand? Get that? Jesus acknowledges Satan has a kingdom. Satan has a rule. Satan has underneath him minions and demons and all this stuff. Again, principalities, powers, and authorities. This is what Paul the Apostle says. And Satan lives off of the goodness of God. So Rene Girard, who is a professor at Stanford University and a prolific writer, writes in one of his books, I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. He says, quote, Satan does not create by his own means. Rather, he sustains himself as a parasite on what God creates by imitating God in a manner that is jealous, grotesque, perverse, and is contrary as possible to the upright and obedient imitation of Jesus. To repeat, Satan is an imitator in the rivalistic sense of the word. His kingdom is a caricature of the kingdom of God. Satan lives off the goodness of God, but like a parasite does. It eats away at it and perverts and devours it and devours whatever is living and good. It kills, sometimes in the most subtle ways. Satan and his kingdom is hell-bent on your destruction and by, and by your, I mean, humanity's destruction. And he wants to do this by any means necessary. He is the enemy of humanity, so much so some scholars will say he's not, actually not even God's sworn enemy, he's humanity's sworn enemy. I don't know if I'd go that far, but that's how, that's how much of an enemy is of humanity. He set out to destroy humanity because humanity is what God wants to redeem, what he wants to give his life to redeem. So how does Satan and his kingdom seek to destroy humanity? And this is where our text comes into play. Temptation. Satan and his kingdom destroys you and me through temptation. As happened in the beginning, happens, it happens every single day in our minds and our hearts. We are tempted in a million ways to leave, question the goodness, the grace, the promise, the love of God. We are tempted to pull away over and over again, not to trust God in his word. We are tempted, and this is what Satan does. He, we are tempted through success, through, through success to like when you become successful to trust in yourself. We are tempted through failure. When we fail, we're tempted to give up. We're tempted through poverty. We're tempted through Riches. There's that proverb that says, God, give me neither poverty nor riches. So if I'm poor, I will be tempted to steal. And if I'm rich, I'll be tempted to forget you. We're tempted both ways. We're tempted when we're poor and we're tempted when we're rich. We're tempted through beauty. Some of us that look at ourselves and know that we're beautiful, we're tempted like, why would I waste this on giving it up to the, the Lord Jesus? Like, I have a lot of life to live. Why would I waste this? 
You know what I can do with this? The power I can, we're tempted through beauty. We're tempted through ugliness. We're tempted when we believe that we're ugly, we, we have to get love wherever we can or we have to hide ourselves. We're not worthy of love no matter what happens. This is the temptation. We, Satan tempts us through power. When we become powerful, to use power wrongly, and we're tempted through weakness. When we're weak, the temptation to rebel or to shortcut. Not just that, we're specifically tempted. I am specifically tempted, and you are specifically tempted differently when you open up your phone. You are tempted when you open up your phone. I am tempted when I open up my phone. We're tempted in different ways. I am tempted, and you are tempted differently when we drive by certain stores or restaurants. We are tempted differently when we're lonely. I'm tempted in a certain way when I'm lonely, and you're tempted in a certain way when you're lonely. I'm tempted in a certain way when I'm too busy, and you're tempted in a certain way when you're too busy. I'm tempted in a certain way when I'm angry, and you're tempted in a certain way when you're angry. All of these are temptations. They're kind of, they kind of sit neutrally, but the temptation is to draw us away from God. Does that make sense? So Ephesians 4.26 says this, and you could insert a lot of this stuff. It says, in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. That all makes sense. And then this last phrase, and do not give the devil a foothold. You're like, whoa, that came out of nowhere. Like we're talking about anger and then the devil a foothold. It's like anger is this thing that could be righteous. Anger is a thing that when it hits you, it usually is because a wrongdoing is done. And anger is, it could be a good thing, but also could be a really bad thing and can lead to a lot of bad places and actually can lead to the devil grabbing onto you and pulling you down. And the same way loneliness is and busyness is and our phones are and restaurants and store, like, what, like these things that are just, that, because things have this power behind them that Satan uses as temptation. Now, these are all sorts of ways that we can open ourselves up for evil. So there's all kinds of ways. We can do it through anger. We can also do it through the occult, through dark practices, through habitual sin, through lies we believe. And all of these are different forms of temptation. So Satan's goal in temptation, the, the goal of the evil one in temptation is to pull you from loving intimacy and trust in God and to keep you from walking in the truth and in the light. But listen, God also has a goal in testing and temptation. And that is God's goal is that you would be refined and learn to trust in God. Okay, this, this brings us to Jesus saying this. Lead us not into temptation. Now, what does this mean? Now, this is really hard. I'll be honest. This is really hard to teach. This is hard to teach because I know it in my soul, and I pray for it often, and I've prayed for it for myself in different ways in the last 20 years, but it's hard to teach. But here it goes. It's incomplete, but it's the best attempt I have teaching what Jesus means by this. It's like praying. When you say, lead me not into temptation, it's like praying, God, keep me from the worst thing happening to me because I don't know if I would make it through with you if that happened to me. I don't know if I'd leave you or lose my faith or want to harm myself if this worst thing happened to me. Don't let what happened to Job happen to me. Job is tempted by Satan, but also tested by God. You see how they're both? He was tempted by Satan. If I destroy everything he has, he will leave you. Now, if that happened to me, I'm afraid God lead me not into that kind of temptation. Why? Because I think I might curse you and die. Honestly, right? If you ever read Job, I'm like, I wouldn't have done that. 
I would have believed my, my wife, like, hey, why don't you curse God and die? I'm like, that's a great idea. I'm going to do that. Lord, don't, don't lead me in the temptation like Job. God, don't lead me in the temptation. Don't let what happened to Jesus in his temptation happen to me because I don't know if I can pull it off. If I was told by Satan, jump off this building and the angels will catch you, I would probably like, get your phone ready because <laughs> I'm going to do this thing. It's going to be awesome. Make sure you capture. I, I don't know what I would, I would like. That, that actually sounds cool. I, I would probably do that. If I was tempted to take the bait of taking all the kingdoms of all the world, I actually might do it. If I was tempted to transform one thing into another thing for my own pleasure and desire, I might do it. Lord, lead me not into that kind of temptation. God, don't lead me to a place, a wilderness, where Satan tempts me like that. Does that make sense? Don't do that, God. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know if, so it's, 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 a, it's acknowledgement of our own weakness. There's ways that I've prayed this prayer in my own life as I moved to San Francisco, as, our, as we planted San, reality of this church, as the church has uh, been fruitful, successful, there's ways I'm like, God, keep me from that thing, because I actually don't know if, that, if I can make it through that thing. Please keep me from that thing. It's an acknowledgement of, my, of our own weakness, our own proclivities, our own humanity, no, we're, that we're no better than Eve and Adam were. But the second part is really, really important as well. The second part is, but deliver us from the evil one. Lead me not into that place, but deliver us. This is different. The deliver us from evil is different. It means if I do find myself in the worst case scenario, if the thing that I hoped would never happen to me happens to me, deliver me from evil. If Satan gets a foothold because of my anger, deliver me. If I am put in a place of temptation and testing that I wish never came my way, deliver me from the evil one. Allow me to come out trusting in you and being successful in the temptation, growing closer to you, God, and not pulling away from you. Do you get this? Even if, this is Jesus uh, uh, going into the, into the Gethsemane, because when he's tempted by Satan in, in uh, the wilderness, it says, and Satan left him for a more opportune time. I don't like that phrase. A more opportune time. No, 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 no. I beat you. You're done. No, he comes back for a more opportune time. There are times when Jesus says, let this cup pass from me. Deliver me from, keep me from, don't lead me into this temptation, but even still, let your will be done. Deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from the temptation of rejecting you. Deliver me from the temptation of dishonoring you. So Jesus prays this and then goes through the worst thing and as he does, he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He goes through the worst thing and does not curse God and die. So this prayer is, Lord, even if I do go through the worst thing, Jesus, would you deliver me? If sin does get a foothold on me, if Satan gets a foothold where I'm led into sin through temptation, would you deliver me from evil? Would you deliver me? We pray that we may be upheld by God's presence and power in such a way that those things that would undo us cannot undo us. This is what we pray. Now, if Jesus didn't think it wrong to end his teaching on prayer with Satan, but something actually wise for his followers, I too will end with Satan. 
I want to end by showing you how Satan tempts, how he tempts us, how he tries to separate us from the love of God, how he goes after taking the good that God creates and distorts it through lies. Satan's temptation is always and has always been based on lies. Lies that, that the Satan whispers to us or, or demons whisper to us. Lies that embed in our lives. Lives that take up residence in our lives. Lives that take up residence to the, so much, to the point where we could actually be demonized. We can actually carry with us a demonic presence. This happens. Now, if you're thinking, well, no, 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 we don't, I don't, I'm not going to go that far. I'll give you a little bit, but not that much. This happens all over the ministry of Jesus, all over the ministry of Jesus. And so, to end, I'm going to ask David McKinney, our prayer minister, to speak to us briefly about tests, or, um, um, lies, the lies that, that Satan tempts us with and how we actually get deliverance from these kinds of lies. And David's going to say this, but I'm going to say, I want to say this too. There will be a temptation right now to think that um, what we're about to do is uh, corny. That's going to that's gonna happen. I guarantee you that will happen. You'll be in the middle of the scene going, oh, this is kind of corny. I'm not going to lie. Do not be, and this is going to sound weird, do not be tempted to believe that. Don't be tempted. Just like Nathaniel when she would share her testimony, like, can God really heal me from this thing that I've had since like my whole life? There's no way. We're always tempted to like doubt. So let's, let's, um, let's ask God to deliver us from evil, even as we do this. So the question uh, is, all right, well, how do we, what do we do with lies and that temptation that would bring us up to a spot where we'd think, and even, even this is silly. The, the first thing that we want to do here is, um, is surrender. The scripture says, submit yourself therefore to God, resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. So this is an act of contrition and humility and simply saying, Jesus, I surrender to you. Um, this is a great opportunity, by the way, for those of you been, after you hear this and you've been kind of sitting on the fence about, do I want to serve Jesus or not? Is this real for Jesus to be in my life? Um, I'm going to lead you all here and on those online in a simple prayer of asking Jesus to be the Lord of your life and surrender to him. It, I would recommend that if you want deliverance, you first start with surrender. That's a, the best place to start. So let's just do this and just repeat with me out loud, even if you've received Jesus before, just, just we're just gonna all join together. For those of you that have never done this before, I encourage you to do it. And just simply say, repeat after me, oh my Jesus, you are my Lord and Savior. I surrender my all and proclaim my commitment to you. I love you. Good job. So we're going to be right there. We're going to now take a few moments to um, renounce some things. We're going to renounce some lies. All right? Life and death are in the power of the tongue. They that love it will eat the fruit of it. There's something that happens when you renounce. You're actually, the word renounce means you come out of alignment. You say, That's, that is not what I believe. I renounce it. 
you're, you're using your, the, your words to renounce lies. So we're going to, and I'll give you some examples of those, and you're and just going to repeat after me some, and if it resonates with you, great. If it doesn't resonate with you, you can say it anyway because you can't over-renounce something. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, you just, I renounce it. You, maybe I'm renouncing it for somebody else. I'll just renounce it. And by the way, we're, we're actually normalizing what deliverance really is. This is a normal part of walking with Jesus, is the authority that you carry. And again, this is about the name of Jesus. We're going to be using his name. His name is above every other name. It's that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The things in heaven, the things in earth, and the things under the earth. It's the name of Jesus that we're saved through. It's the name of Jesus that is the authority. And by the way, the name of Jesus includes his character, the name includes him, who he is. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to re- renounce some things. So just follow me and uh, repeat after me. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that nobody cares if I live or die. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that it's always my fault. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I do not have a voice and I'm invisible. And here's where we're gonna renounce a spirit. Um, not having a voice and invisible is a, is a symptom of something. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the orphan spirit. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that something's wrong with me. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I'm ugly. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I'm unworthy. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie, and this is first for the women that are moms. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I'm a terrible mom. And this is for the dads. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I'm a terrible dad. Or if you're a grandpa, then I'm a terrible grandpa. (laughs) I'll say that one. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that God won't or can't help me. And God doesn't want to help me. And God doesn't care about me. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that God is against me and God wants to punish or is punishing me or God is getting back at me. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that God is not in control and that I've destroyed God's plan for my life. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that God cannot forgive me. In the first service, we had someone say that they felt like there was um, specific at this congregation, and you might resonate with this. We're going to have some fun with this. Um, that about the word control. So we're going to renounce the lie around control. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I am in control. 
and I can fix those who I love and that I can fix myself. And we're going to renounce a spirit here, uh, the spirit of control. So in the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of control. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I'm not normal. And here's where we'll renounce a, something else too. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of shame. In the name of Jesus, I renounce unforgiveness. In the name of Jesus, I renounce condemnation. In the name of Jesus, I renounce guilt. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that it's hopeless and I can never change. And we're going to kind of start landing the plane, but you can kind of feel the atmosphere shift. There's things that are happening in the spiritual realm where you're coming out of agreement. It's beautiful. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that I have to earn God's love. Oh. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of pride. In the name of Jesus, I renounce self-justification. In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that the enemy and Satan is stronger than God. And lastly, In the name of Jesus, I renounce the lie that God could never love me. And along with that, in the name of Jesus, I renounce the spirit of fear. And in the name of Jesus, I renounce rejection. Good job, everybody. So we're now going to do something called everything that you've renounced now has... uh, it's a spot where Jesus' authority, you've renounced it. You've given the authority for Jesus to be in that spot. You say, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Now I'm going to speak a command. So would you stand? <laughs>